to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream. I'm your host, coming at you live, Love Poliakov at Love Po on Twitter. And today we have a wonderful guest back with us here, Dr. Jason Riza Giorgiani, prolific author, philosopher, uh, wrote Lovers of Sophia, Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Iranian Leviathan. If I would list all of them, we'd probably dedicate the entire episode to just that. But uh, Jason, I am always happy to have you here with us. And I never want to have an episode where we keep going over the same things we got over uh, multiple times again. I always want it to be something new, especially for all those diehard Johnny heads. I know who you are watching. So that is exactly what we're going to be offering up today, talking about uh, your new wonderful book. But before we get there, I just want to say to everybody watching, be sure to smash that like button, smash that subscribe button like you mean it. And don't forget to share this with everybody and clicking the bell is very important. And we're also going to be needing some super chats here and there uh, after the main conversation. Uh, and hopefully we're going to have enough time to uh, uh, do that. And let's just get on right down to it. Artemis Unveiled, the new Jason Churchani work. Mainly, I find this to be, number one, about uh, your vision for what is a Promethean society going to be like, what is a society that's going to be radically free, but also talking about the antithesis of that, the traditionalism. And I entitled this particular stream Against Tradition, but let's actually get down into it, find out what exactly tradition means to you. And also, I probably think that some of the fans of Jason Giorgiani read your book thinking oh man you know what i don't like his conclusions but i love all of these visions that he keeps having about this authoritarian traditional society that's where i want to live in so i think we can admit that there are going to be people out there who are going to be rooting for the uh, bad guy so to speak when reading your works just because of how well you're able to describe those worlds but tell me a little bit about what exactly tradition means to you and why you're so gosh darn against it despite all those people loving it Okay, I'm gonna give you the first of all, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Lev. Uh, I love the style of your show. And um, so let me start with a very uh, broad brushstroke summary. And then we can delve into uh, more nuanced aspects of this and unpack it as they say in academia, um, as we go along. But tradition, in the sense in which I am deploying the term and in the context of, uh, well, let's just say um, right-wing uh, discourse today has a very specific meaning. It, it doesn't just mean, you know, a customary way of life or something like that, or, you know, how peasants live in the countryside or something, uh, or how people live in un undeveloped or underdeveloped countries. Rather, tradition, um, in the sense in which I'm using the term is really a product of late modernity. Uh, it, the conception of tradition that I'm working with comes from the school of René Guénon and uh, Julius Evola, the so-called perennialists. Um, and what they mean by tradition is a putatively perfect and primordial I was going to say wisdom, but I would I would rather use the word knowledge, uh, a, a fixed and perfect understanding of the nature of the cosmos 
and how that macrocosm ought to be reflected in the microcosm of human society. And these perennialists believe that at one point in the primordial past, we had such a society. Uh, in uh, the West, we call it the Golden Age. The Hindus call it the Satya Yuga. And all these traditionalists believe that, um, and you can find this, you know, both in certain of the dialogues of Plato, not with Plato endorsing it, but with Plato describing this conventional view that the Greeks of his time had. And you can find it in ancient Sanskrit texts as well. This view that the world passes through a successive series of ages, each of them more degenerate than the next. So there's a degeneration from the golden age of the Satya Yuga all the way to the Kali Yuga, the darkest age of basically total degeneracy and dissolution, which they believe modernity to be an expression of. And so these people, Ganon and Evola and, and others in that school, they, uh, they basically think that uh, it's futile to attempt on a social scale to reverse this decline that we need to basically allow the process to run its course and that what a traditionalist ought to do is to privately, in the sphere of their own private life, spiritually cultivate themselves to be prepared for a new Satya Yuga, for a new golden age, where after basically uh, after the modern world has been wrecked and from out of its ruins, the gods return our guardians, our ancestors, whatever you want to call it, the Hindus call them the devas, the Olympian gods in the Greek tradition, or uh, let's say the ancestors of Confucianism. They will, the celestial ancestors, so they will return and they'll basically set the world right. And what does set the world right mean? Well, it means going back into a caste system because they all agree that we had a caste system in the primordial past when the world was governed according to the tradition, capital T, so what does that mean, caste system? Well, you know, again, you can find Plato describing this, uh, you know, in the form in which it came down to the Greeks, and you can find it in Sanskrit texts. And of course, it actually forms a, a central uh, pillar of Hinduism, of Vedanta. Yeah. So the Varna, Varna, our English word varnish comes from that root. And because originally it was a color coding system and there's a racial dimension to this. So you have the gods on top, then you have the Brahmin. The Brahmin are like basically, let's just say people who serve the gods and who order society and make sure everything is, is run properly. Uh, and of course, in, in this primordial past, these people were the custodians of a temple state. And then underneath these Brahmin, you have the Kshatriyas. They're the warriors or guardians. Uh, knights, a knightly class, basically. Um, the the Nazi SS conceived of themselves as such people. Where Gautama Buddha came from. Exactly. Gautama was a Kshatriya. He was from the Kshatriya uh, class. And so, by the way, on a side note, a lot of people think, you know, uh, of Buddha as a pacifist and all that. And, what, and it's true. You know, in his teachings, he's preaching. He's, uh, he's advocating nonviolence, okay? But he's advocating nonviolence coming from out of the knightly caste and as someone who, you know, was had participated in a lot of violence, let's say, okay? That kind of changes mm. the image that most people have of Gautama. In any case, under the knightly caste, 
you have the basically ordinary people, uh, business people, merchants, traders, and agriculturalist farmers. And then at the very bottom, you have untouchables. You have basically people who are so lowly and base, according to this schema, that the Hindus actually believe it's bad luck to touch them, that you're going to get bad karma from even being around them. So part of this supposedly wonderful primordial tradition, which, you know, uh, held sway in the world before Atlantis rebelled against Olympus, to put it in a Greek context, part of that world was that you have these masses who are considered kind of basically subhuman, and they were kept as far away from the Brahmin and uh, from the Brahmin as possible. And you have the Kshatriya kind of enforcing that. And you certainly wanted to make sure that these Chandala, these untouchables, never got anywhere near the gods. Because, you know, look, uh, despite uh, what modern skeptics and, and, you know, scholastic academics like to believe, all these texts clearly describe a time when gods were living amongst humans on the earth openly. And it was the purpose of the Brahmins and the Kshatriya to make sure that the gods were protected you know, when they were basically uh, strutting across the face of the earth and, and you know, governing essentially these city-states, <clears throat> each of which were dedicated to a particular god. And there was also human sacrifice as well, at least if we're talking about these uh, early Hindu sects. If I understand correctly, they're emulating the creation of the world by sacrificing uh, somebody, correct? There is a description of human sacrifice in the oldest Vedas, but I would argue that the entire system is a system of human sacrifice because it's a system built on mass slavery. The entire system is intended to sacrifice man to the inscrutable purposes of the gods. And these traditionalists claim, rather controversially, I'd have to say, if you look at the, you know, in, in theology or comparative religion, I mean, this is, this is actually a difficult view to defend, but they believe this, that all of the so-called great world religions, Islam, Judeo-Christianity, uh, you know, Vedanta, certainly, um, and even probably like Confucianism and so forth, they believe that all of these, interestingly, by the way, it was a big controversy whether Buddhism is one of these. And the early traditionalists had a big debate over that. And in the end, this guy, uh, um, Kumaraswami, Kumaraswami, Ananda Kumaraswami, tried to convince the rest of them that, okay, you know, Buddhism is one facet of the primordial tradition as well. But I think rightly, Rene Ganon resisted that initially. And because I think that there are aspects of Gautama Buddha's teaching that really are counter-traditional. And they're the very same aspects of Buddhism that overlap with my Prometheism. In any case... They believe that all these, you know, great world religions and the orthodox forms of them, okay, especially, uh, are refractions, they're facets, they're expressions of this one primordial tradition. It's like the primordial tradition is the white light going into a prism. And these various religions are like the rainbow colors that come out, right? And they believe that you should stay in your own tradition. So... Don't think by this they mean like unity of all religions in New Age sense. They're very much against that. They think that's satanic. They believe that you should stay in your own tradition because your own tradition, small t, is basically a refraction of the primordial tradition, capital T. 
And it's your access point to that primordial tradition and to, you know, God or Brahman or whatever you want to call it. And or the mandate of heaven or whatever the hell. And so they basically advocate uh, adherence to whatever the orthodox way of life is that's prescribed by, let's say, Sunni Islam, you know, or I mean, even even Shiism. Uh, or, um, you know, Orthodox Judaism is considered another expression of the primordial tradition. Uh, or, of course, you know, being an adherent Hindu, which also means subscribing to the caste system, among other things. Or, or subscribing to the idea that, you know, uh, your wife is basically there to sacrifice her life to you and your success. And that if you die, like, she should throw herself on your funeral pyre, right? Um, or any number of the extremely repressive uh, views on women that you find in Islam in the Quran itself, which claims to be a perfect, complete law code and so on and so forth. And so they believe in adhering to these, whichever, you know, of these orthodox traditions you just happen to be born into because that's your lifeline to God. And so, I mean, that's basically a summary of, of uh, tradition for you in the sense in which I'm deploying it in my works. And I'll just end uh, by, by noting that, you know, my project of Prometheism is in a very uh, explicit sense, counter-traditional. So Rene Ganon had this idea that modern secularism, like, you know, beginning in the 1700s, 1800s, rationalistic, mechanistic, reductionist thinking, right, and, and the secularism attendant to that in the sociopolitical realm, he called that anti-tradition. And he said, anti-tradition is just preparing the world for the advent of the antichrist. It's not fully against tradition because it's shallow, it's superficial, it's this kind of materialism is, you know, it's spiritually bankrupt. So it actually doesn't have that much power to oppose tradition. But then he says, there is something else called the counter tradition. And after the anti-tradition, as modernity comes into full flower, as it completes itself historically, you're going to see anti-tradition yield to the counter tradition. And unlike the reductionism and, and secularism, materialism of the anti-tradition, the counter tradition is deeply occult. And its great sin is to treat the the spiritual right uh not to say paranormal the psychical to treat it scientifically and uh gunon was horrified by this idea that there was going to be at some point in the in what was the future from his perspective there was going to be this religion which treated the spiritual or the psychical scientifically which recognized you know esp and psychokinesis and all of this all of these human capacities that have been passed off as either miracles or demonic possession in these traditional religions, but recognize them in a way where they were treated, uh, you know, empirically in the scientific spirit. And Gunan believed that that was the advent of the Antichrist. Which is kind of ironic when we think about it, because one of the points that you made in your book was that the laws, the so-called laws that we are living under, may as well be habits. And that's something that I want to get to later on, but in a way it kind of topples down this idea of there being these very strict 
things that have to be followed in existence in general. But even before we get to that, I want to get to some of the reactions, which I think do speak to this tendency for people to rebel against what they see today as being the prevailing orthodoxy. So, for example, we have this, I'm sure, nice gentleman who has an avatar of the wolf and Romulus and Remus under that wolf that are being fed, you know, like a wink to the Roman Empire over here, uh, saying, Vaisha reporting in, based, you know. So a lot of them, like I said in the very beginning, they see a lot of these things being, yes, finally, those SJWs are going to get what's coming to them. And that's the other thing I wanted to address, which is, Despite you being very open in terms of radical freedom of the possibilities for human beings to pursue various desires, uh, various experiences, it seems like the culture that we're under right now, whether it's a lot of these uh, social justice activists or the stop oil activists that are desecrating, you know, old statues and, you know, priceless works of art. It seems like that kind of environment is extremely authoritarian in its own way, and as a result of which, a lot of these people with the Roman Empire avatars end up pushing back, seeing traditionalism as the only way that uh, a lot of this great culture could be preserved. So I'm curious what you think is going on there. So two things. First of all, the guy with um, Romulus and Remus sucking the tits of the <laughs> she-wolf. Uh, might want to consider changing his avatar if he's a traditionalist, because actually that's a symbol I use in my novel, Faustian Futurist. And um, I believe it refers, it, that it's a cryptic reference to the founders of Rome being Scythians. The wolf was the totem of the Scythians. And in Iranian, uh, let's say, mythology and folklore, it was known that these Scythians, and, and this has been corroborated by archaeology as well, that they, you know, they were semi-nomadic and they migrated deep into Europe at certain points. And um, I've always suspected that, uh, you know, that th they were the original founders of Rome. And in their culture, you have women warriors. And I, sh I uh, you know, this actually becomes a very prominent idea in, um, in Artemis Unveiled. Toward the end of the book, I talk about this culture, which I've described in detail in Iranian Leviathan, uh, which was, um, let, let's just say, a culture where you had women warriors and women rulers, uh, a, a northern Iranian culture that spanned from, you know, basically uh, the borders of China all the way past the Black Sea region and into southeastern Europe. So so anyway, Romulus and Remus, just wanted to make a side note on that. I, I, I uh, I think that the power behind the she-wolf is um, is not something that's, uh, to say the least, supporting tradition. But in any case, as far as the SJWs are concerned, look, I mean, this could be a long conversation, right? Because all basically a lot of my sociopolitical work is uh, directed against what they're doing. And so... You know, I mean, it leaves some people maybe scratching their heads, thinking like, well, Giorgiani's promoting all of this progressive whatever, and how is he against SJWs? Look, it's very simple, actually. When you have supposed feminists advocating for open borders and the mass migration of men from Africa and Arabia into Europe and North America, 
who are going to threaten the status of women in our societies, which it's taken centuries to achieve, how is that progressive, right? When you create mini Pakistans all over Britain, or you have, you know, I don't know, basically various, you know, African countries reproduced in the Midwest in certain ghetto communities, and these people are coming from countries where female genital mutilation is practiced. And they are basically creating safe zones for the implementation of Sharia in Western countries. How is that good for women? And how can the people who advocate those policies call themselves feminists? Or to give a very uh, a live example, right? Right now, for the past... Oh, what's it been, nine months or so, there's been this huge uprising in Iran. Huge uprising. The, the slogan of which is um, women, life, and liberty. Zan Zendigi Azadi, women, life, and liberty. And these SJWs are looking at these Iranian women who are burning their headscarves and saying that these women are brainwashed by Western colonialism or whatever, you know, some Western chauvinist whatever, and that they, they basically are traitors to their own culture and they should stay mm -hmm. under the hijab. Well, I mean, first of all, they're totally ignorant of Iranian civilization and its own values and they don't understand the distinction between that and Islam and whatever, because most of these people are historically ignorant and not actually interested in understanding anything about what history actually consisted of. But be, be that as it may, even if that weren't the case, what kind of retarded view is that for someone who claims to be a feminist to take, right? No, absolutely. Or, or, for example, like when you when you advocate for ethnomathematics and say that black children should be judged differently by a different standard in math class. Right. I mean, basically not have it pointed out to them that two plus two always equals four and never five. Remember, two plus two equals five. That's big brother talking. Well, right. math is math is racist. Didn't you know that, Jason? Whenever anyone tries to tell you that in some cases two plus two might equal five, you know, that's the Orwellian, you know, totalitarian system trying to take over. So what happens when they advocate for ethnomathematics? Well, they they, they you know, basically are crippling black children who are not going to strive to improve themselves in an academic setting. Right. And and so how is that actually advancing equality? But of course, these people don't want equality. They don't want equality of opportunity, which uh, would be part of a meritocratic system. They want what they call equity, which means basically um, parasitism. It means taking all of the value, uh, wealth, uh, industrial production, and so forth that is generated by uh, motivated, creative, and intelligent people and redistributing that to incapable people, the end result of which is going to be civilizational collapse, which is exactly what these people want. They ultimately, these SJWs are not interested in social justice. They're interested in vengeance. They are driven by nothing other than resentment. And what they want is the collapse of the West because they hate what the West has achieved, including equal rights for women, including, uh, you know, the discourse of Martin Luther King. The, you know, these Martin Luther King, if he were alive today, I got a lot of problems with him. I mean, the guy was a Christian preacher. OK, but if Martin Luther King were alive today, I mean, he would be the first person to uh, repudiate Black Lives Matter.
he, he was a person who believed in, you know, uh, the enlightenment values and equality of opportunity and essentially was trying to have the Constitution of the United States be applied evenly. These SJWs want to burn the United States. They want to burn down the West and open up a vacuum for what? For the rise of Islam, for the rise of China. And, you know, when you see big money going into these uh, organizations from people like George Soros, and you see George Soros also in business with, I'm sorry to say, Nazis in the Ukraine, you, there's something going on here. There's something going on behind this, the, the curtain here where these uh, Black Lives Matter advocates and SJWs don't realize that they are tools that are being used for some other purpose. Mm. What I've referred to as the, you know, basically controlled demolition of uh, the modern West for the sake of the, the uh, ultimate reimposition of a traditional world order. Now, I w don't want to dwell too much on uh, Ukraine at the moment, although that would make a very interesting stream if in the future you ever want to get on uh, with uh, Vladislava Davidson, who was on with Curtis Yarvin a while back talking about that whole thing, uh, having to do with... I saw whole... the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that could be an interesting uh, future episode, which is why I don't really want to dwell on that aspect too much. But as far as talking about like Nazis, Ukraine, all that, personally, I don't find at least the people who are not behind the scenes, whoever the hell may be behind the scenes, as far as the actual people who are in parliament, the amount of people that voted in the far-right parties in Ukraine was incredibly minuscule. But if we are talking about whatever may go on in the shadows, like we were talking about with Operation uh, Paperclip after World War II, and various people who may not represent, whether we're talking about the United States or Israel or Ukraine or any other place, may not represent what the overall consensus is, but may be doing certain things, then I would leave room open for that. But that also opens up the question of how do we make sure we don't get into this mindset of being totally demoralized when it seems like people who get very interested in uncovering the secrets of what's going on behind the scenes, they also tend to see everything that's going on as almost fatalistically being out of their hands as being the work of people behind the scenes that they are not empowered to challenge. In order to throw in a couple of white pills in here, Jason, what would you say are examples throughout, let's say, recent history when people who are more in line with the Promethean ethos were able to actually score a victory and whatever plans happen to have been hashed by those who would want to bring us into more of an authoritarian structure actually ended up failing? First of all, I am certainly not some fatalist who thinks that resistance is futile. I mean, I'm the 180 degree opposite, right? Yes. I mean, uh, if anything, I'm a lunatic who thinks that it's actually possible to defeat these people. And I've basically devoted my entire entire life to it, you know, at great cost. So uh, at, at costs that, you know, you'll never know. So in, in any case, I, uh, I certainly think there's hope. And if you ask me for some concrete examples, well, I mean, see, here's here's the um, here's the situation. The traditionalists, the people who are masterminding this plan to basically implode the West, to deconstruct it, and to use the discourse of social justice to do so, 
from their perspective, they think that they're giving us enough rope to hang ourselves with, right? So they think they're going to be able to use uh, cultural phenomena, which I would consider to be creative, but which they would brand as decadent. They think they're going to be able to use that in the long term to their own advantage. Meanwhile, the people who I would say are broadly aligned with my ideals, uh, we think that actually these people are idiots and they don't understand, you know, uh, they don't understand the Promethean spirit. I, I don't want to say they don't understand human nature because I have a long argument in my works where, you know, I, I basically lay out the case for why there's no fixed human nature. But they don't understand the human spirit within man. And they don't understand how by giving us, a certain, you know, allowing us to have a certain amount of oxygen, this is actually going to cause a blaze to engulf and consume them in the end. And so I would say a phenomenon like the entire cultural production of the decade of the 1980s is incredibly encouraging. I mean, that we were able culturally, particularly in this country, to, you know, um, produce so many uh, intrepid, visionary, um, you know, creative, uh, uh, basically narratives in our popular culture, in our literature, uh, I think that, um, that that suggests that we still have a tremendous momentum, okay? And even today, uh, although a lot of our cultural production actually reaches back to the era of the 1980s, you see in you know, the work of somebody like, let's say, Sir Ridley Scott, um, a very profound opposition to tradition, which is at the same time able to reach masses of people and affect probably the collective unconscious. Uh, I would say somebody like Philip K. Dick, who, you know, whose work is, is uh, still today just being mined for its tremendous creative potential, is again somebody whose um, wide appeal is a big blow to tradition. And, you know, you could go on with all kinds of examples of this, even, you know, in the sphere of comic books and what affect the minds of, of mm. children. Alan Moore, his Prometheus series, for example. I mean, there are many, there are many examples of this. And then in terms of like uh, actual innovation, I would say the Internet. I would say that the people who took the ARPANET and transformed it into an Internet that could be used by the general population across the world, across all borders. People like Jacques Vallée working at SRI in the 19, late 1970s. Uh, they have really provided us with the circulatory system and, uh, you know, maybe the nervous system of a superorganism that, I, I don't want to say too much about this, okay, because it's, uh, you know, it's a sensitive matter and strategic, but I think that something could come from out of the internet that would be um, utterly debilitating to our traditionalist mm -hmm. enemies. And, and soon. Well, I could combine in my mind those two things. For example, you have a retrowave, which is an art style that harkens back to the glory days of the 1980s, along with 
being uh, big fans of uh, Japanese culture, anime, and all of that, all these things seem to be coalescing on the internet today. And also, let's not forget that part of that whole retrowave style is the use of these uh, Greek uh, st uh, statue heads. So when I take a look at that, I also see a yearning for something beautiful and a balance between order and chaos. So I definitely want to get to this aspect of it in terms of artwork, in terms of the future artwork of the uh, Promethean movement. Because if we take a look at, for example, uh, the uh, work of uh, the genius French artist uh, Mobius, as well as uh, the Art Nouveau movement uh, back during its uh, heyday, we see this combination of the natural together with the ordered. And I would say the same thing for when you're walking down Gotham, New York City, some of the most appealing works of art that almost feel like they're part of some uh, lost civilization now would be just like your average townhouse with its beautiful moldings and the columns and all that. While at the same time, like, hey, columns, that's pretty orderly, you know, but at the same time, there's also something appealing about that. If it was just chaos even like an ordered chaos like in nature well i could just go into the forest and that's great but like something like japan again they tend to combine those two things together where they have these temples that almost look like some kind of angel out of neon genesis evangelion you know or the outfit that the japanese emperor wears something that feels like otherworldly while at the same time still being able to blend in with nature so the point of all of this is to say I don't necessarily see order itself as being the enemy here. It just seems like it's about the right combination of order and chaos. And I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, the traditionalist aesthetic in its purest form can be found in the most high precision largest scale megalithic ruins i think we may have touched on this oh definitely yes yeah. talking about yeah talking about how the time I travelers really, I really repeat myself too much but long yeah. story short right i mean these people believe that at at some point in the in the primordial past before the differentiation of the tradition into these existing cultures and religions where each of them has its own aesthetic like the hindu aesthetic versus the muslim aesthetic and so on and so forth right there was this single aesthetic which most perfectly embodied the tradition, capital T, and it was an ultra geometric aesthetic because it's supposed to be instantiating cosmic order and it's supposed to be timeless because see time change is seen as a sign of degeneracy and decline. So what's timeless is most perfect, eternal. And uh, so like the Osirian at Abydos in Egypt is a great example or the Tiwanaku uh, structure in Bolivia and so on and so forth. These kinds of austere, anonymous, megalithic types of or, or the pyramids, the pyramids, especially back, you know when the day in the days when they were still surfaced, when they still had their limestone surfacing. Yeah, they were just totally precise and you know. So and notice inside the pyramids, there's no there's no hieroglyphs, there's no indication. Yeah. That, you know, it doesn't look very Egyptian in there. It looks same, same thing with the Sphinx Temple. Exactly, it looks inhuman. And that, that's from that world of tradition that these people want to go back to, okay? Um, whereas, as you mentioned, if you look at the art of Mobius, Jean Giraud, or Philippe Drouillet, uh, in particular, a bunch of these people worked in France. Philippe Casa is another one. People whose art appeared in the uh, Metal Hurlant, heavy metal magazine in the 1980s, 70s and late 70s into the 80s. The aesthetic that they developed has this 
seamless fusion of the organic with the technological. And it's an aesthetic that I, I was deeply influenced by and that, you know, uh, in a way I'm attempting to forward in my own project uh, and that I make references to in Artemis Unveiled when I describe the world uh, of the, uh, you know, Promethean utopia. But at the same time, I don't think you'd be ready to smash the uh, nice looking columns with the uh, little uh, bits of uh, nature on top, you know, like those curving uh, lines that almost seems like a combination of nature and uh, kind of a human or maybe in your opinion, inhuman order. Because I'm like smashing yeah. any art, okay? I'm against any kind yes. of smashing of any art. This no, no, I, I know that, but you, but you know what I'm getting to, right? Well, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's not, look, it's an important point because see, history is important. We, we, you should never try to erase the past, okay? I mean, even if it's a past you detest, right? Like, uh, you know, these megalithic structures that I'm talking about, you know, I would be the last person to say we should demolish them or some something, or you know. Uh, no, I mean, here's where I really disagree with, uh, you know, F.T. Marinetti. I, I respect a lot about his futurism, but I really don't agree that we should go into the museums and basically destroy all these great artworks and sculptures and so forth of the past. Uh, we should, we should uh, keep them as uh, reminders of the progress that we've made since and um, as, as something that basically allows us to become more conscious of the way in which our perception uh, and creative capacity has evolved. Maybe this is going to be a pushback on my part, but if we were to take a step back and not even look at some of these structures like the Sphinx, for example, or the uh, pyramids as being just buildings, but as being a giant calendar system, for example, the pyramids uh, referencing the stars and the Sphinx referencing the position of the constellation of Leo a very, very long time ago, it seems like a lot of these things are there in order to tell time on a grand scale, which does make sense if we were to assume that time travel exists and these beings want to maintain uh, this uh, continuity. But even barring the existence of these time travelers, it's something that I think is important for us as far as expanding outwards into the universe to be able to keep that track of time. If we just devote ourselves to just making, you know, pretty looking insectoid H.R. Geiger uh, monuments, that's all well and good. But I think that there should be an emphasis on let's actually understand what is going on beyond the here and now. How much would you grant that that is important? And would you also implement structures that would address that sort of thing, like giant calendar systems? Yeah, but they don't have a, they don't have to have anything to do with architecture. We can have giant calendar systems and uh, not not have it be integrated into how we build buildings. And the other thing about these structures, like the pyramids, the and and uh, the the other megalithic um, uh, constructions that are have astral uh, astral alignments, is it look? It's also a reflection of this uh, microcosm and macrocosm worldview. These people literally were replicating the heavens on the earth, partly as a religious statement, uh, about the fact that they had, in their view, succeeded in instantiating cosmic order on a microcosmic scale. 
So, you know, it's not just that like they were trying to keep time or something. There, there was another aspect to that. And it, you know, when we talk about durability, um, I, I described this to some extent in Artemis Unveiled, but I also uh, did a, a, an art compilation, an AI art compilation video called The World of Prometheism, which you can find on my YouTube channel. And if you look at some of these structures, these uh, more organic structures that I designed that, you know, draw from the aesthetic of Mobius and Druyer and H.R. Giger and so forth, um, they would be incredibly durable. They would just, it would be like they were a part of nature and they would kind of like last for eons. So I, I don't see them as being any less enduring than the pyramids. One one big distinction, though, is that those kinds of structures that I have in mind and that I, uh, I deploy in my description of the Promethean utopia of the future, they're uh, kind of chameleon-like. They blend into the natural environment so that if they're undersea structures, they kind of look like giant corals. Or, you know, if they're on asteroids, like at first glance, you couldn't necessarily tell if it was a natural structure or an artificial one. Whereas the pyramids and other large polygonal megalithic structures are also kind of designed to say, hey, we're here, you know, intelligent life built this. Big, so, big dick energy, in other words, like having absolutely. these giants. Yeah. And, and so it evinces a different mentality. Like if your mentality, I mean, look, Prometheus is a trickster, right? If your mentality is kind of to, you know, employ stealth and to sort of operate in the shadows and basically to be piratical, then you don't want to announce to everybody everywhere that you are, right? So there's also that element to the kind of aesthetic that I'm advocating. You got to be like the octopus, which plays a very big uh, role in your book as well, as far as this creature who could be from uh, the future, for all we know, that is able to blend in and also is able to employ a lot of these trickster-like uh, uh, attributes. But the only other thing that I would say to give the devil or rather to give the angel their due if we, you know, flip them around is that if we look, for example, at people like Wilhelm Reich and his orgone accumulators, which were supposedly these devices in order to har uh, harness sexual energy, there are theories about how a lot of these megaliths were used for a similar purpose of being able to harness energy. And what is your take on that possibility and does that also have something to do with having these very specific shapes because either something works or it doesn't and if it does work having to do with having a specific shape then would that not be something that we should be interested in investing our time into as well okay uh in philosophy of technology my my specialty uh back when i was uh, back in my school days my specialty was philosophy of technology although I, I i reject entirely the idea of specialization i think that anyone who wants to be a philosopher should get as far away from specialization as possible okay but be that as it may uh my specialization was philosophy of technology and one thing that you see very clearly when you study that is that there's multiple pathways to accomplishing a certain end technologically. There's multiple types of technology that can, or techne, craft, that can produce the same effect. And so I have no doubt that there's something to all this pyramid power and, you know, that the, the geometric shape of certain structures has certain effects and all that. And, you know, yeah, Wilhelm Reich, among others, was into that line of research. 
And I also have no doubt that Atlant that the society of the people who built these megaliths originally, okay, because the, the picture that we get from Plato and others is that the Atlanteans eventually rebelled against that structure. They were part of that structure. Atlantis, Atlantis was part of that primordial world of tradition, but then ultimately it was the part of it that turned against the rest of it. And that's where we have the, the counter tradition begin, right? But the people who built these megaliths and who set up that society originally, I have no doubt that they produced tremendous health through the craft that they employed. And that when these traditionalists return, when they attempt to return in our near future, one of their huge selling points is that, oh, we're going to cure disease and we're going to make your lives so much healthier and so on and so forth. And you've been living in a horrible, horribly unhealthy way. And we have all these ways that we can basically bring you back into harmony with nature and so on and so forth. But what they won't tell you is that the same uh, health benefits that, uh, I don't know, pyramid power or whatever the hell are going to give you, can be achieved using nanotechnology and various uh, forms of biotechnology that are emerging today. There's multiple ways to do the same thing using techne, okay? And the reason why they want to do it using pyramid power or whatever is because they don't want us to have nanotechnology or genetic engineering because that would threaten their power. Okay, because having that kind of technology widely disseminated in our world would put us on an equal footing with them because they themselves are the product of genetic engineering and other forms of enhancement. Okay, so uh, they'll only give us the types of techne that um, keep us relatively disempowered and in a kind of surf relationship to them as feudal lords. That's kind of ironic when you think about it, though, because these are beings who supposedly have this reverence towards everything being very natural. Why would they be the ones to use nanotechnology? Because in a way, that would be spitting in the face of their whole spiritual idea, is it not? Have you ever seen the leaders of any totalitarian system be ethically consistent? Not really. Okay, well, that, that's all the answer that I have to offer you. No, that's uh, fair enough, but it is still Power justifies itself. Sure, right? sure. Some people, they drink the Kool-Aid themselves, and other people are just really very cynical, and they will, they will basically allow others in the ruling elite to believe a certain narrative and certainly, uh, you know, perpetuate that narrative among the population. So, I, I, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, well, let me put it this way then. I think that it's correct of me not to want to pursue psychedelics, and I'll tell you why. Because when I did take psychedelics one time, the Terrence McKenna heroic dose, it was very eye-opening as far as things that I was able to see. But at the same time, it also let me know that I was prying open a door that I could have and now will work towards opening up in a more natural way and the reason i think that's important is because i don't want to have a crutch i want to be able to use 
my own willpower in order to open certain doors because I think in the long term it actually makes you stronger as opposed to having like imagine if everything that you ever did from waking up in the morning going jogging whatever was all done with the assistance of these little nano machines that would just like pull your muscles this way and that way and you could just relax you're not doing anything at that point you are being totally anti Heraclitus's whole idea of what life actually is so I think that there is something to using the willpower, which is why I'm not necessarily going to side with the idea that the one way out of this whole predicament is through, although I admit it does help, as any technology does, the coming nanotech. And I would hope that there would be an emphasis on utilizing whatever is inside to also be able to enter these various transcendent states of being and especially i'm curious how that is going to relate to these otherworldly states people end up getting into in between their incarnations and that is something that i could probably talk to you for hours about what exactly that world is but uh, for now curious what you make of that uh, resolution of mine uh listen i agree with you and by no means in no, in no work that i have ever written could anyone construe me to be saying that technology is the solution to all our problems? Not at all. You know, I, for, I mean, for fuck's sake, I mean, you know, I, the will to power, okay? I mean, Nietzsche, my, I, I'm very much a successor to Nietzsche in terms of my thinking. And so obviously the most important thing in our struggle is to cultivate ethos and to find and act by our own true will. So, you know, to live a heroic life is not something that you can get from technology, right? We need to use technology to empower us in the right ways at the right time. But uh, that's certainly not going to replace the cultivation of ethos. That's the most important thing. So, so yeah, no, I, I, I certainly agree with you. I'm not one of them. I mean, I'm not a Ray Kurzweil type. He's like uh, ridiculous. Yeah, but- with yeah. the mountain of supplements that he takes every single day and all that. Uh, and I wonder, like, what maybe, like, going into the cave for a while would uh, would do to the guy. Because it is quite amazing what you are capable of uh, experiencing, you know, when you, uh, when you don't have your senses all in a tizzy from the various things that you encounter in the world. Much like someone like fasting, for instance. When your body does not have to work on digesting food, there is room for other experiences. But anyway, that being said, I want to concentrate on another aspect of uh, this uh, Promethean life. But before that, I just want to say we are going to be sneeding Super Chats, so be sure to sneed those Super Chats right now for uh, the uh, later, and be sure to smash that subscribe button, smash the like button, click the bell, all that all that good stuff. Oh, and also, I have a Substack, uh, lefpo.substack.com. I'm going to post it. It's really, really good. Anyway, so the second thing about the uh, Promethean lifestyle has to do with uh, sex and uh, gender. So when it comes to the switching of the genders, if it were to be done in a biological way, that could be something potentially very interesting. But then I start thinking about Carl Jung, and I start thinking about this need that, let's say, men have with their anima, with this female aspect that they're searching for. And let's say if you get lucky enough, like perhaps like a, yourself did, uh, Jason, 
when you find somebody who seems to, and I'm not speaking for you specifically, but the whole idea is that you find somebody who would be able to complete you. Not to say that you would not be able to function without them, but somebody that would make this whole experience worthwhile. Somebody that would be your partner and would be compatible with maybe something that you do not have unless they are there to be able to complete it. You know, like two pieces fitting in together nicely. While people, obviously, we have people who are into all kinds of very different things in life, you know, like you would have gay people, lesbian people, whatever, trans people. But as far as having that kind of satisfaction, I don't know how important that is in the grand scheme of things. But at least the way things are now, it seems like that yearning for the anima or the female yearning for the animus that that is not really something that I could imagine just discarding where everybody's going to, you know, have a little bit of each inside of them. And at that point, it's like, well, then why search for anybody? You know, if everybody's just the same. Do you see what I mean? Like, it, it, it almost seems like that's the big criticism people wait, have today. Wait, wait, hold, yes. hold up here. Okay. 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 Hold up here. Let's pick okay. this part a bit. Sure. Okay. Yeah. First of all, I am not advocating, nor have I ever advocated in any of my writings that everybody should be the same, quote unquote, as you just said, right? My vision of the future is not like we all become these little gray aliens, that all we're all the same non-color gray, mm -hmm. and we're all these like, I don't know, like totally gender ambiguous, gender neutral like things, right? Yeah. No, no, no. That's the furthest thing from the future that I want that anyone could imagine, okay? Um, oddly enough, oddly enough, despite my being against SJWs and whatever, I advocate a future that's diverse, right? In which there are men and women in my society that I envision in the future, there are men and women, but there's also been an evolution beyond a strict sexual binary. I was going to say gender binary, but not only gender binary, beyond a strict sexual dichotomy. And it is the case, if you look in any major culture in the world, from India to Greece, that there has always been a conception of the androgen or of a hermaphroditic human being or some, some third term beyond the dichotomy of male and female, as embodied by divine figures, okay, like the Greco-Roman hermaphrodite or Shiva Ardhanari among the Hindus and so on and so forth. So this has been part of the human imagination always. And those who argue that this should remain strictly psychological are basically making the same kind of argument as people who said that, I don't know, the airplane was satanic because if you know humans were supposed to fly the way that humans have always dreamed of flying and the way that humans flew in their dreams, literally before the airplane was invented, then God would have given us wings, right? No, technology actualizes our dreams. And there's something very deep in the human collective unconscious that is reaching toward a transcendence of the gender or sex sexual binary, okay? Again, that doesn't mean that we're, there aren't going to be men and women. Of course, there are going to be men and women. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, there is a possibility for an evolution socially beyond a strict sexual binary in society. And the technology is going to drastically facilitate that, that a lot of the problems that you see today 
with transsexuals are going to be easily overcome with genetic engineering and nanotechnology within the next 20 years. And so, you know, there will be very seamless uh, uh, um, uh, capacity to very seamlessly transition between sexualities and so on and so forth. And, and a lot of this business about, you know, like, I agree, like, you shouldn't be trying to change the sex of some, you know, underage person. Uh, and, but you see, that problem won't exist in the relatively near future, because the whole issue there is that unless you give hormones to a child beneath a certain age, like that uh, transition is not going to be as successful. And all of that's going to be shelved, basically. All of that's going to be pushed aside by further advances in nanotechnology and CRISPR-type genetic engineering, right? Um, but oh, let, me, let me address another part of what you said. <clears throat> and that's having to do with the anima and animus and Jung. I don't think that um, I think it's a very romantic, naive notion to believe that someone can say a, a male can only find his anima in a woman. I think that even today, I mean, if you were to go ask like, you know, I mean, I don't know that many uh, homosexuals, but if you were to, I, you know, if you were to go ask them, I, I guarantee you, you would find many gay people in relationships where they found their anima in someone of the same sex. I mean, people, their spiritual polarity is not necessarily the same as their, uh, you know, um, biological sex. Certainly not, not, not necessarily. And so, you know, the dynamics there on a spiritual level are complex. And I'm sure that in the gay and lesbian community, you're going to find all, lots of couples who on a spiritual level found that other uh, side of the Jungian, um, you know, polarity in the person that they're with, irrespective of biological mm. sex. And, uh, you know, that would continue on into the future. But even there, though, there seems like there is a return. There is this uh, return of the perennialist, you know, rearing, rearing its uh, beautiful, well-sculpted head our way. Because in the way what we're saying here, if we admit that there is a polarity, then that polarity would have a certain aspect that we could call masculine and another aspect that we could call feminine. We could call them different names if we, wa if we want to. But if we do admit that there is some kind of a polarity going on here and some kind of a yearning for one thing to experience something that is counter to it. How does that then... have anything to do with traditionalism? I mean, there's day and there's night. I mean, there's all kinds of polarities in the world. But, you know, the, the idiocy of traditionalism is to reify the polarities into binary categories. This, this has to do with my concept of the spectral revolution. The polarities are polarities of a spectrum. Everywhere in nature, every time we see a polarity, it is a polarity on a spectrum. Okay, the, And so... You know, to think that these represent definite and mutually exclusive categories, that's the problematic thinking that is uh, endemic in the traditionalist mentality. I would definitely give you that, while at the same time I would make room for a lot of people wanting to feel a certain kind of satisfaction, a certain reason to play the game of life, if you, if you will. So, for example, let's say you're Joe the Plumber. And you want to have a certain life where, you know, you work very hard all day, then you go back home to your wife and kids and you eat a steak and all that. And certain aspects like that give you a certain satisfaction life. And you hope, you hope that the other person 
actually enjoys being there for you and doting for you and is not just doing that out of some sense of uh you know being a prisoner trapped in the patriarchy so that is at least the hope for people who would want to discover that kind of satisfaction while of course there is room for people to go outside of that do you uh, do you agree disagree what are your thoughts there i think that joe doesn't live in my promethean utopia of the future I don't. No. Poor Joe. Poor yes. Joe the plumber. First of all, the robots do all our plumbing, so <laughs> I don't see why Joe the plumber would be <laughs> or his housewife for that matter. Mm. Well, do you find that uh, for some of the people who are more in the Promethean mindset, we can look back at, let's say, the founding fathers? There is definitely a thing that I would love to later on have you listen to, and this is something that uh, our good friend Neil Gnostic Informant uh, sent our way. And this has to do with the founding, uh, well, the people before Francis Scott Key creating this an exernotic song, which is an ode to Venus and Bacchus, which, as uh, Neil uh, wrote over here, the combination of those would be uh, Lucifer. So Venus and Bacchus entwined would be Lucifer. And this gentleman who wrote this, this is the melody, the exact copy, the melody of the Star-Spangled Banner. And I wouldn't say copy. This is the progenitor of the Sp Star-Spangled Banner, composed by John Stafford Smith. And it is dedicated to the ancient Greek poet Anacreon, who was renowned for his drinking songs and odes to uh, love. So when we think of the Founding Fathers, nowadays I don't really think of like apple pie and, you know, the American flag and then the eagle and Jesus, you know, with a machine gun. I would think of things that are a lot more Luciferian in nature, a la the Freemasons and all that. So I'm curious, who would you say are the people who would have been more on your side back then as far as whether their philosophy you would say would be totally deist or they would have also made room for the spectral? George Washington was not a deist. George Washington was a 33rd degree Freemason who talked to a um, an alien <laughs> <laughs> who told him that he was going to win a certain series of battles and that the country that, um, that he was founding was going to endure for centuries and become a great power in the world. And, you know, George Washington laid the cornerstone of the White House in his Masonic robes. And when you choose, and Franklin was another one of these, Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, undoubtedly. You know, Franklin believed in reincarnation. He never ran for president because he thought he was not capable of the level of dissimulation, not to say deception, necessary to sell himself to the public because he knew that he was just, his beliefs were way too eclectic um, to be that level of a public figure, you know. Um, and a very Promethean uh, person, obviously, also, I mean, as an inventor, Benjamin Franklin, right? But um, when people like Franklin and um, uh, Washington uh, originally conceived of the uh, totem of the United States as the phoenix, and then later it became the eagle, but originally it was supposed to be the phoenix, they said they said it looked too much like a, a turkey or something. I don't know. They drawn the phoenix, and they said, "No, no, people won't understand what this is." You know, we have to make it an eagle. Anyway, it's supposed to be a phoenix. And when they came up with the motto that's over that bird and over the pyramid with the all-seeing eye on top, "Anuit coeptis novus ordo seclorum, e pluribus unum," 
our daring endeavor, a new order of the ages out of many, one. And why are there 13 stars? Because Betsy Ross liked uh, that number. There were 13 colonies at the time that she wove the flag. No, 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 no. If you actually look at how many colonies were there on board at various times, that actually doesn't add up in terms of Betsy Ross weaving the flag with 13 stars. The reason there are 13 stars is because there are 12 zodiacal constellations that represent a full cycle of the ages. And so when they say a new order of the ages, novus ordo seclorum, which people mistranslate as new world order, it means new order of the ages. What they were saying is the United States is under the sign of the 13th zodiacal constellation, meaning we're going to break time. We are going to break the cycle of the order of the ages. We're going to break what the traditionalists organize their life around. They knew this. And that was supposed to be the project of the United States. Unfortunately, it had one fatal flaw. And this is something that uh, Jefferson and Madison discussed back and forth in their private correspondences. If you, they're published, you can look at the letters between Jefferson and Madison. And in one of them, Jefferson writes to Madison, look, this business about, uh, you know, uh, freedom of religion, this is an experiment. We believe that human nature is such that if we just give people a good education system, if we just keep religion out of the education system, and we, we try to universalize education to the greatest extent possible, within a couple of generations, no one will believe in Christianity anymore. Jefferson literally writes this to Madison. Within a couple of generations, no one will believe in Christianity anymore. And then he adds, and if it turns out that I'm wrong, then we will have misunderstood human nature and the experiment of the United States will have failed. Okay? So clearly, clearly the experiment failed. And clearly they misunderstood human nature uh, because people don't want freedom. Most people don't want freedom. And this is something I've made very clear throughout my work. Most people want tradition. The majority is on the side of traditionalism, and democracy is a vehicle for traditionalism. At first, it seems very ironic. You know, you think of these right-wing traditionalists or right-wing people. You associate them with Nazi Germany and all this. And what, but by the way, by the way, what did Nazi Germany come from out of? It came from out of the, one of the most democratic country in Europe at the time, the Weimar Republic. Okay, so democracy mob rule, what the founders of the United States hated. They hated democracy. They called it the tyranny of the majority. And go read what each of the founders of the United States has said about democracy. I quoted in, let's say, World State of Emergency, and I think probably one or two other places. And they were trying to set up a system that would guard against the tyranny of the majority, but they didn't go far enough. The United States was too democratic. It is too democratic. Now, forget about it. Forget about it. Yeah, in uh, New York City, uh, there was a proposal to have a, a legal migrants vote. Oh, I know. And not just New York. I mean, California, there's this whole discourse, yeah. too. Uh, it's insane. And so, yeah, look, the United States failed because of its, if, of its uh, degree of democracy. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you cannot, if, if you give people the right to determine, masses of people, if you give them the right to determine 
not only their own future, but your future, and you allow the masses to tyrannize over the individual, there's only one way that that's going to end. It's going to end with the execution of Socrates and the burning of Giordano Bruno and, 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 the burning of the Library of Alexandria and the flaying of Hypatia. That's how it's going to end. Well, we've seen similar things, I would say, from my own history, as far as the USSR goes, where, you know, not that I was a big fan of the uh, czar and all that, and they had their own problems, believe you me, but it seems like it did not take that many of these intellectuals to be able to go in there, you know, like Lenin and Trotsky and such, and empower the people against the elite. So whenever people like, uh, you know, those who are much more fans of, you know, getting rid of the elite and getting the people together. I'm always a little bit skeptical because they're like, have you seen people? You know, have you seen like what happens? Like a person could be great, but people en masse, we've seen recipes for disaster, you know, in terms of what the 20th century showed us uh, uh, happens there. So I agree with you as far as that aspect of it. There should be a lot more, let's say, wisdom, but I am uh, not for a dictatorship either, which it seems, again, like a lot of the further right people, you know, with the uh, uh, wolf tits uh, avatars, you know, are wanting to have uh, implemented. And what, according to your text, you assume, at least at first, is going to be implemented. And what I'm curious about that, without getting to specifics, because, again, by the book, it's really good. I, I read it. I recommend you guys read it, too. Uh, uh, if we're getting into the specifics of it, what would you say was the mode that you were able to make a lot of these predictions? Was it just common sense? Was it being able to have some extra sensory perception? Was it able to have certain pieces of information that other people are not privy to or all of the above? All of the above, uh, considerable amount of geopolitical analytic ability and uh, capacity to rationally, analytically project certain trends the way that a futurologist does. You know, I mean, there's people who do these kind of forecasting at think tanks and so forth often. And, you know, it's a travesty that we don't do it to the same extent the Chinese do. The Chinese think like this all the time. The Chinese don't, they, they always think in terms of 20 year plans. I mean, this is the way yeah, but then look at the one-child policy. I mean, they don't really seem to be doing that good right now. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future. But You just wait. <laughs> you just wait. They, they're buying up all the best farmland in America. And because of our retarded political system, we're allowing them to do it. And they'll have plenty of children on our land here after the world has been significantly depopulated. So don't worry. Don't worry. They'll replenish their population at our expense. Well, if there's one uh, lesson here, I think, for the American people to learn is that you really do have to have much more of a Promethean outlook on things as far as being able to foretell certain things. And I don't really think it's that hard. It is that we are living in the moment, which is, again, possibly a criticism of freedom or liberty if i again i was to push back a little bit on liberty which i don't want to do i consider myself to be a liberal but the pushback against liberty would say that too much liberty means you end up enslaving yourself to the short-term desires that are just spur of the moment like oh i want to do drugs i want to all you you you, you get what i'm saying yeah but that's not liberty see look this is where you have to study you know ideas in depth that's licentiousness and 
look, I'm not, I'm not against a, a little licentiousness here mm -hmm. and there. I mean, anyone who reads, re reads my books knows that. But um, free-spiritedness, what they call in Persian azadegi, and uh, was considered part of the chivalric ethos, pahlavani. Pahlavani is the chivalric ethos, which came from Iran to Europe through the migration of the Alans into Europe uh, during the collapsing Roman Empire, and that formed the best part of an otherwise rather deplorable medieval culture in Europe, right? Part of this chivalric ethos was what they called azadegi, or free-spiritedness. And free-spiritedness can only really be embodied by a man of will, right? I mean, you have to be able to set aims and goals for yourself to be, look, if you are subject to the whims of the moment, then you're totally unfree. Your behavior is being determined by your environment. The man who's truly free or woman who is uh, truly uh, embodying liberty is someone who's not so contingently determined by their external circumstances or by what this or that other person has distracted their attention with in the moment. A person who's truly free is capable of setting long-term goals for themselves and uh, actualizing them. So, so yeah, I, I would I would not subscribe to that definition of liberty at all. There would be the criticism that, again, not coming from me, but coming from more of the uh, Roman uh, uh, statue avatar people having to do with the only way you can implement that kind of sense of liberty is through having some kind of a top-down structure to kind of force people to get into that mode or else. Or Fuck else the This is my basic problem. Fuck the people. I don't care. I don't care about these masses who skin uh, women like Hypatia alive or who vote to poison Socrates. I am here to end their world. Bottom line, it's us or them. It's us or them. Why? Because we're coming up against the technological singularity. We're in a unique historical moment. This is not like the rest of human history. We have not been in this particular moment for 12,000 years. We haven't been in this situation since the days when, you know, the Atlanteans rebelled and, you know, we know what the consequence was, right? Uh, we're told uh, about the flood of Noah and, you know, every other version of it in every mythology in the world from Sumer to, I don't know, whatever. Uh, so, look, we, we're not going to get another chance at this. Look, and I, I am not interested in waiting another 12,000 years or 5,000 years or whatever, okay? If we lose... At this crucial moment and the uh, empowering potential of the technological singularity is stolen from us. We are not going to get another chance at this for a very long time. And I, for one, am not willing to go back into the dark ages. So, look, it's, it's us or them. It's either, you know, the mindless mob who are definitely going to back traditionalism. Or it's us, the small group of Promethean rebels, the ragtag band of uh, piratical people who intend to fight for liberty at any cost, right? Give me liberty or give me death. It was the slogan of the American Revolution, and I believe in it. But that kind of liberty, like you mentioned uh, in your book, as a possible criticism that the Olympians would have of you 
would only be able to function in a state of war, if I'm not mistaken here, where it is going to take you being against something and having some kind of a militaristic backbone, while at the same time a lot of these artistic and uh, freedom-oriented things are going on for the whole thing to work. And again, I don't want to speak for you here. That's the impression that I got. Is that correct? Well, what I said in Artemis Unveiled was that's the criticism that the Olympians, the, mm. these gods, these overlords, that's the criticism that they and their traditionalist flock have of Prometheism. So I, you know, in the voice of my narrator, uh, I basically say, look, um, these guys say that the only reason why we're able to have as anarchic a society as we have, which is, you know, beyond libertarianism, sort of in the direction of anarchy, is because this is a society that's always on a war footing and there's a sense of military camaraderie across this entire society. And, and also there's a chain of command, which even if there, you know, um, even if there's a tremendously liberal spirit to the society, uh, it's still bound by a military ethos where there's the discipline of a chain of command, right? And so, so I have the narrator say that, look, um, the Olympians, the, the enemy, say that it's because of our constantly being on a war footing that our society doesn't fall apart. But then my narrator comes back and says, well, no, I think that's a load of crap because, look, they say we're, we're living basically under martial law all the time. The reason we can essentially live without law is because the law we're living under is martial law. And I, I have my narrator come back and say, no, I mean, look at the kind of society that's been described. How is that a society under martial law? I mean, societies under martial law suffer from scarcity. They suffer from it's, it's during martial law that freedom of expression is extremely curtailed. Right. In every war, there's tremendous censorship. And so all of these facets uh, of martial law. Um, you know, are, are utterly lacking in the Promethean society that I describe. I mean, you can't see any of these deleterious effects of martial law in, in uh, this utopia that I portray. Um, but, but if I want to be uh, somewhat diplomatic, I would say in response to your question that there is a warrior ethos that animates my work and very much in the same spirit as Heraclitus and Nietzsche. And I think it's fair to say that if this Promethean utopia were achieved in our solar system, that the people, the denizens of that society would not stop there. They would, they would explore, because of course, exploration, discovery is at the core of the values of, of a Promethean society, right? I mean, the spirit of Columbus, you know, and Magellan and so on and so forth is, an inter, is as integral to Promethean society as technological development, which by the way is why <clears throat> Frankenstein opens with a sea voyage of exploration. People forget that because it's not in any of the movies, but Frankenstein begins with intrepid sea exploration and then goes to the question of like transhuman technology. So yeah, uh, we would extend ourselves out beyond the solar system into other solar systems, maybe into other galaxies, ultimately. Or as into explorers. other dimensions as well. Other dimensions other as explorers, right? But yeah, we would also uh, 
expand out beyond our solar system as warriors. And I can imagine that there are all kinds of uh, uh, forms of oppression throughout the cosmos, that there are many societies that are unfree, um, where uh, the spark of individuality is being snuffed out by one totalitarian system or another. And yeah, I think we would go to war with those people when we found them. That and sounds that pretty... for a very long time. That sounds pretty, pretty exciting, Jason. I mean, that is something that I would love to get into later on on a uh, future episode of Break the Rules and kind of talk about what exactly are these various uh, potential realms, at least with the information that we already have and the various entities and beings that are there. And you touched on some of them in the book, like, for example, the reptilian creatures and other, let's say, uh, creatures that would be called the uh, jinn in Islam and these beings of fire, supposedly. And that is also something that's very interesting to me as far as understanding how exactly could we exist in a world where our sight and our various uh, our, our various uh, senses are not necessarily dictated by a corporeal body, but could be existing in some other in some other holographic light form, whatever you want to call it, in something a little bit more animated. But the one thing that I do want to touch on there, which I think is a very big and important part of your book, has to do with these. I would call it like make anime real type of beings if we're talking about like these human alien hybrids but not the hybrids of who you are designating as the authoritarian you know space nazis but the hybrids of more of this uh trickster super entity and what exactly these beings are their relationship to us so before we transition to the super chats here i would just love to get a little bit more info on who these beings are and do you actually see a connection between some of the things that may inspire some of the japanese artists for example when they depict like these big big eyed uh, uh anime waifus or whatever and these creatures so go ahead yeah i think they're possessed I think, you know, look, these characters in Japanese anime, especially like, you know, the serious, more serious anime, you know, um, Evangelion and stuff like that. Uh, that's not coming from out of a Japanese um, consciousness. That's something else. And I talk about this in Prometheus and Atlas all the way back in my first book. There was a chapter called Kill a Buddha on the Way, which uh, is largely about Japan. And I point out in that chapter how Prometheus is an archetype that transcends the West and how you can see uh, in modern Japan this Promethean spirit emerging uh, even with greater virulence than in, in the declining West, sadly, um, at least in the decade of the 80s. It, it, it's changed somewhat. In any case, I do think that on, on the level of the collective unconscious, something other than the Japanese mind is producing these visions in Japanese anime. And uh, these beings, which appear in my book, Uberman, as well, um, they, uh, they exist. And um, they are a uh, superhuman form of life. And they also represent a kind of David against the Goliath of Olympus. They have capacities 
that are beyond ours. And, um, you know, I hate to put it this way, but, you, you know, uh, what's that? Ender's game, right? Um, where you have this vision of like, sadly, child, child soldiers, basically, right? And they think they're playing a game, but it requires the unique capacity of these children to win the war that's being fought in that scenario of Ender's game, right? It's something like that. These beings uh, are like Ray in, uh, in Neon Genesis Evangelion. Remember the, the yeah, kind of the blue haired girl. Girl, Ray. I mean, she's a test tube child, uh, a, a, a clone tank child. And um, there's something true about that vision and about the, uh, the kind of blow that these beings can deal to our enemy um, that's real and is going to factor into our future. And uh, it's, it's a matter that I'm deeply concerned with. Yeah, and there are other anime as well, like, for example, Xenogears, which is not an anime so much as a video game. I don't know if you've ever uh, played it back in the day, but that's also one that I think touches on a lot of these uh, various uh, concepts, even in the style of dress. Like, if you look at uh, Tenshi Muyo and all of these very strange sci-fi anime movies and uh, series and video games you even have like these very fancy outfits with the uh pauldrons on the side and uh, the capes and the, the armor there's something very otherworldly about the way that a lot of these rpg characters dress that at the same time almost seems to make sense like yeah of course they would dress like that you know in the uh in the days to come but anyway uh let me that, add, yes. add one last thing before sure. we go to the sure. chats uh, on that. And uh, I say this knowing that, you know, uh, of course, this may be a proviso that applies to a lot of the things that I say, but uh, that I'm going to sound like a lunatic saying this, but um, you're, you're in good company, Jason, don't worry. In, in the future, in the future, there is going to be a witch hunt for these little people. And there, there are going to be voices like banging on pulpits and podiums to murder these people. They're going to be called demonic and branded as demonic. And they're going to be witch hunts to exterminate them. And I believe it's very important that we protect them. We meaning we Prometheans. Well, one final question. And before the super chats, when we're talking about these beings, before I was mentioning the spectral nature of them, as opposed to being fully solidified. And again, I'm using these terms very loosely, because it would be hard for me to define what exactly that means. But in your in your thoughts, what exactly would something like that mean? How for further away from what we consider a corporeal reality would these beings necessarily be as far as would we be able to grab them by the wrist shake their hand like what exactly are we talking about here okay, you, i mean yeah. you'd be, be able to yeah, i mean you can certainly grab them absolutely um but they can also walk through walls and matter isn't what we think it is i mean we live in a quantum computational cosmos and, you know, the relationship between consciousness and the collapse of the probability wave of the wave function um, is what defines phenomena that we take to be, quote, unquote, reality. And, you know, a more, let's say, advanced form of consciousness um, like that, which would be yielded by artificial intelligence in combination with cybernetics and so forth, would be able to manipulate the world 
uh, let's let's say would be able to uh, would be able to more dynamically express the spectrality of the world. Okay, so we are spectral. We're spect. The world is spectral. Sure. Yeah. But our our latent materialism concretizes things and creates limitations that are an exteriorization of our own mental constructs and filters. And that would not be the case with a higher form of consciousness that also had cybernetic um, capacities. Including potentially the so-called gods, these uh, Nordics uh, coming in, where I would imagine they'd also have a few tricks up their sleeve when it comes to not necessarily being as solidified as we would imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's this one account of one showing up in Hitler's bedroom at night, and he used to scream. They, his doctor would come in, and he was curled up in the corner shrieking. And he kept pointing in the corner of the room saying, Easy, he came again, he came again. And uh, they had to get medical treatment for this on a fairly regular basis. He claimed this tall Nordic would just show up in the room in the middle of the night. And the Nordic didn't say anything to him. He would just stand there and laugh at Hitler. <laughs> well, well, he does have a funny mustache, so I could see the... Uh... I kind of understand why somebody like Charlie Chaplin would also choose that kind of mustache. And the whole thing is kind of the whole thing is kind of ironic too, how we have uh, all these various characters playing their roles and they do look kind of clownish when you think about it. Like we just have like this mustached guy that all these people on 4chan are obsessed with and like the entire world uh, you know today looks on uh, and is you know memorized by them, but not so much these Nordics. Like I wish there were more movies about these Nordics, but there's not. The closest thing is Dragon Ball Z. But anyway, it's on yeah. purpose. It's yeah. on purpose. It is being deliberately <laughs> censored. Uh, indeed. Uh, other than I'll break the rules, here we do not censor the, uh, the Nordics. Oh, and by the way, before the super chats, I love that painting in the background there, and I know it's got the Prometheanism symbol on it, and it also reminds me a bit of Evangelion, like the Fifth Impact. I don't know whether it's like that uh, cyclone that's going on back there, but it does remind me of one of those backgrounds from uh, from the new movie, definitely from the remakes. So anyway, everybody on to the super chats, and don't forget to like smash that subscribe button, click the bell. The bell is extremely important. And also join the Substack. I am going to put a permanent link to my Substack over here, lefpo.substack.com. I just had an article about Miladies, which is the uh, the new hot NFT thing that's been uh, very, very popular as of late. And I've recently had an article about, uh, what did I even have an article about? See, the stream is so intense that i free oh about the book bans about how i consider that the books today the ones that are getting banned it's not really for the right reasons because i would rather personally even though i make the point that it's a bad idea too I, if you're gonna ban books at least ban the stupid books because there's a lot of books with like sex and violence and things like that in there and i don't think that the kids are going to be scarred for life or something when they read it i think they're getting scarred for life when they read just like really bad quality books that are not worth the paper they're printed on. And that's what that article is about. Be sure to check it out on the Substack. And finally, patreon.com slash break the rules. If you like the program that you've just heard right now, be sure to look in the description. Other episodes with uh, Dr. Giorgiani, the other two episodes are going to be right in the description. 
But if you want this to continue, and believe me, I want this to continue, but it's not going to be able to continue without your help because Break the Rules is about bringing everybody together from all these different social circles. Like uh, like Jason uh, was telling me that he saw the recent episode that I have with Vladislav Davidson uh, and uh, Curtis Mencius Moldbug Yarvin. And uh, Vladislav belongs, uh, he's a fellow of the Atlantic Council. So when you think about like that kind of combination, Break the Rules is the only place on the internet where you're going to have combinations like that happen because that is the power of my will i am willing all of these different combinations into existence because it's about damn time somebody does so patreon.com slash break the rules you're also going to get these very beautiful magnets that you see on the screen right now in front of you when you become a patron my dad makes these magnets he's an amazing artist and if you become a 20 dollar tier subscriber for the patreon you're going to get these magnets it's going to be a random magnet if you become a 50 dollars tier patron you're going to get a custom magnet whatever design you want my dad is going to make it happen anyway jason on to the super chats here we go larry tinsley five dollars i love Giorgiani. got all his books but i love tradition and natural order too any thoughts keep on loving just yeah, I mean, you know, at some point, something's going to click somewhere in there, you know, never underestimate the human capacity for cognitive dissonance. But, uh, you know, uh, keep reading my books and someday something's going to snap somewhere. Jacob A.H. 499. Great chat, Jason. Keep going, brother. Hail Prometheus. Glow in the dark. Five dollars. Cast let me uh, let oh. me just uh, make okay. a response to that uh, right. to, uh, to uh, Sir Jacob A H. Uh, you should get in touch. That's all I have to say. Nice. Glow in the dark. Five dollars. Caste system is an extreme form of hierarchy, and would say a degeneration of a healthy hierarchy for it has no room for people to move in the hierarchy. That is that is a good point. That is a good point. Any thoughts on that, Jason, before we uh, go on? That's the point. I mean, they don't want mobility within the hierarchy, except for supposedly after you die, right? So according to the traditionalists, you have to slave away as a good farmer, uh, giving proper respect to people in the castes above you. And if you properly fulfill your karma in the caste that you were born into, then you have a chance at rebirth in a higher caste, right? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. It's a life of service within the context of the caste that you're born into with the idea that over many lifetimes, you're going to ascend this ladder. Interesting. And, well, one question that I don't want to miss that I wanted to ask you regarding karma is, let's say if we have a Promethean society, but we really need, you know, we really need the meat, and we have all these cows, and we just, we're going to make a factory farm. We just, like, need to eat all this meat. I understand, like, let's say you have an idea that, well, we don't have to do that anymore, but let's say in the reality that we do. And let's say even forget Prometheanism for a minute and just focus, like, on the here and now with the cows, right? So as far as how karma works, if what we're saying is that karma right now is controlled by some mechanism, 
if it were not controlled by these various entities, what would happen in the situation where we would be causing these animals that have a certain degree, in my opinion, of uh, sentience to them to experience hardships and uh, intense amounts of pain and just living a hellscape of a life? and we just slaughter them and do these horrible things to them, what would happen to us as a result of it? Even Nothing. somebody who just consumes a burger in McDonald's. Nothing. Other than struggling with our own conscience. I mean, that's the problem. The problem is that if you do things heedlessly, which cause suffering to others, at a certain point, once you become more aware and introspective, you may feel terrible... Uh oh person oh there we so, go you're you're back you you were uh, glitching out there for a second okay, jason so let me repeat myself i i was saying that you know the guilty conscience is the problem there because you know a heedless person who eventually becomes more self-aware and more introspective and and more aware empathetically of the suffering that they've caused to other entities people animals etc may may suddenly be crushed by the guilt of what they've done and you know that kind of guilt can kill a person. So uh, that's the issue. There's no law of karma. I guarantee but, you. Go, so, read, go read the cases mm -hmm. uh, of Dr. Ian Stevenson, University of Virginia, um, uh, psychiatrist who studied uh, spontaneous memories of children's past lives, thousands upon thousands of cases over the course of 30 years of University of Virginia. And it, go into the phenomenology of these cases and you will not see any laws of karma there. Not even in, let's say, the mid-states that may have not been as accessed as far as, like, certain, I don't know, hell realms that they could have experienced in between the incarnations. That would not hell be the case. Hell realms are one of only two things, okay? So hell realms are one of only two things. Um, they're either... Okay, so one thing about the Bardo state, what the Tibetans call the Bardo state, I tend to use their term for it, the transition between death and rebirth, Right is a dreamlike state insofar as your perceptions of the quote-unquote, this is all metaphysically loaded language, I mean, with false assumptions baked into it, but the so-called external world that you perceive when you're disembodied, again, all these very imprecise terms, but it is, it is warped and distorted by your own projections your own psychological projections. So if you're a person who has a very guilty conscience and there's all these traumatic incidents in your past where, you know, um, you caused harm to other people, you had tortured relationships with this person, that person, whatever, these uh, psychological complexes are going to get mixed up in your perceptions of the external world in the transition between death and rebirth. And so there's a way in which you can create a hell for yourself in the transition between death and rebirth. But again, that comes down to your own mental discipline and your own ethos and so forth. Okay, there's no moral law that's making that happen. So it's the almost other, like the, the psychopaths in the world end up getting scot free because they don't exactly. have that. Oh yes, oh yes, <laughs> yes. And and then the other kind of hell is. Uh, and by the way, that's also true of psychic ability. Is that is that you know there's there is no correlation between uh, psi and ethics zero. There's almost an inverse correlation. Like, well, like like the, the PK man, for instance, who looks like a used car salesman and just ends up uh, causing all kinds of havoc. 
Yeah, yeah. Some of the most horribly unethical people have tremendous high ability in any case and very unreflective people. But in any case, uh, the other kind of hell that there is, I've argued, uh, is that there is a psychotronic technology which these overlords have. And they're able to cut into our experience uh, of the transition between death and rebirth. And not in all cases, for sure. And it, it's because it's not in all cases that we can tell that it happens in some cases. In some cases, they're able to take people and basically pull them into a constructed experience, which has a heavenly or a hellish quality, depending on what they want to achieve in terms of the manipulation of that person's soul. But if the person is aware that something is up, then maybe there is a chance they would be able to fight against whatever they would have in store for them. And it also kind of makes me think, hey, maybe there's some people out there who are so in the know about these things. They'll be like, you know what, guys, I'm just going to go up here in these heavenly realms or whatever. I'm just going to create my own world here and just like chill, you know, and I don't know if this is necessarily the case. My my suspicions are but it could be my fantasy too at play that when i take a look at some of those tibetan buddhist dhanka paintings where you have like a buddha who's just chilling on a lotus leaf and there's like other buddhas around them like maybe that's literally where this dude is just like chilling out and other people are just like joining him and they're just chilling out together but i don't know that could just be that could just be uh something that that i'd like to think is the case but anyway uh next super chat here and you, you you don't agree with that, right? That that is what's going on with those Stanka paintings. The Tibetans uh, emphasize the tremendous capacity to construct one's own reality or project a a, a, con, a mental construct, and that can be done individually or it can be done collectively. And so, and they also believe, like for example, in being able to create and sustain egregores. Mm you know, move through the physical world. And so I don't deny that uh, it's possible to construct a collective hallucination and to spend a lot of time inside of that collective hallucination. And in fact, Gautama Buddha himself talks about this in his sermons. He says that there's a whole class of beings among the many types of superhuman beings that he discusses who just spend their time doing shit like this. They just create basically collective mental constructs for themselves and like hang out in there. It's like a, basically like a psychedelic experience, but it's, it's like a party and the yep. little prayer things that they give out to the practitioners are like invitations to the party. Hey, you're invited. You just got to recite the name of this Buddha like a thousand times and you're in, you know? So yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I know you're not a big fan of that, but I don't know that that's pretty. No, I want to know what's going on in other galaxies. And if there if there are tyrannical <laughs> governments there, I'm interested in toppling. There we go. All right, here we go. Glow in the dark. Twenty dollars. Super chat. Uh, you seem to be utopian to me. The problem with the spectrum view of the world is that you can't be specific or differentiate things and concepts for an anti-traditionalist. You use a lot of traditional teachings like liberty. Look, uh, nowhere in my writings do I advocate abandoning categorization and systematic thinking. From the beginning in Prometheus and Atlas, from the beginning of Prometheus and Atlas, what I say is that we should develop 
a plethora of different paradigms. Okay, so I'm for maximal epistemology. There are these traditionalists, as if, as if there's only one epistemology. No, we know from our own history of science that we have all kinds of rival epistemologies that frame different paradigms as the parameters that constrain scientific research. So what I'm saying is that scientific research and technological development should be unbound by these paradigms, that we should have multiple paradigms and we should flip back and forth between them depending on what practical purpose we intend to accomplish. So by no means are, am I advocating a, an abandonment of systematic thinking and careful classification with a view to some practical purpose. I'm just saying that we shouldn't be the prisoners of our own concepts. And one more from Glow in the Dark. Actually, two more, and that, those are all the super chats then. Uh, one more from Glow in the Dark, $5. Uh, and by the way, Glow in the Dark is the official king of the Super Chats right now, who you could see in gold on the screen here. See, Jason, I got my own cast system going on with the, uh, with the timeline. Uh, Glow in the Dark, uh, $5. We need a new futuristic view of liberty, not your traditional limited Dark Ages understanding of liberty. Be a true Prometheus. Liberty is a spectrum. Yeah, liberty is a spectrum. So what is this guy saying again? Sorry, I was momentarily distracted by, by he's, something. He's saying that we need a new futuristic view of liberty, not just your traditional limited Dark Ages understanding of liberty in order to be a true Prometheus. It sounds like he's trying to out-Promethean you, which I don't think is possible, but... Yeah, I, I don't think it's possible either. Anyway, let's move on. All right, final Super Chat of the day. And this is actually a good one in terms of plugs because Glow in the Dark says for $2, Jason sounds like he should write sci-fi books. And you have indeed written sci-fi. Well, okay, plug away, plug away. First of all, we're discussing one. <laughs> all right. I mean, it's a sci-fi novella. Uh, second of all, more substantively, I've written two of them, Faustian Futurist and Uberman. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm doing it. There we are. And where, Jason, could we find your wonderful books? Um, just search on Amazon. Search Jason Reza Giorgiani on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way. There we are. And before we go, Jason, anything? Oh, no, 33 U.S. dollars from Diogenes Dogo. Sovereignty belongs to Admiral Hyrakenis. I'm butchering Hyrcanius. the Hyrcanius. Hyrcanius. as in Hyrcania, which is northern Iran, around nice. the Caspian Sea. Yeah, very, very high up area there. Who knows? Maybe in the future I'll uh, be able to visit if things get better politically i mean well the, your book talks about that so you know let's 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 keep our fingers crossed so anyway diogenes i think you are now the official king of the super chat thank you so much for sneeing the super chats everybody and thank you so much jason researcher johnny dr jason researcher johnny phd it is always a great pleasure to speak with you on break the rules i always look forward to these conversations and it's always it's always awesome so thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure, Lev, and I look forward to uh, getting together in person before long, too. Absolutely. All right, guys, take care. That's it. Be sure to like, to comment, subscribe, click the bell, sneed the, well, not sneed the Super Chats now, but wait till the other stream, which we're going to have next Thursday.